0: One of the perspectives that you gain as an older believer uh, is that um, you can see how God has uh, prepared you in advance for both uh, uh, negative things as well as positive things. And that um, uh, was illustrated, I guess, the best for me for an older gentleman in the church I first went to when I was saved. And he was um, uh, quite uh, often, he participated and shared. And whether or not he was sharing something that was, that was a, a good thing that happened, in an occurrence, or a, uh, an anniversary, or something like that, or something negative, it was always that Jesus had supplied what was positive, or that Jesus would sustain him through what was negative. And I found that very instructive the older I got as I was able to look back on my life and see how God had prepared me in advance for a lot of things. Um, one of those things was just in uh, the responsibilities that you uh, recognize that you have taken on when you have a family. Um, and one of those, for us, one of those clear responsibilities was to uh, teach our kids about the Lord and to participate with them in a local church. Uh, and so but also you have to pay the bills. And so I had a job where I had to work on Sundays and it was getting very tiresome. So I gathered the kids one night at dinner and asked them to pray that dad wouldn't have to work on Sundays anymore and they did. And uh, then in the following week, I was fired. and So it was quite a shock since we had just moved into the first house that uh, we had uh, owned. Needless to say, we were I was a little anxious and uh, I had some small bits of work to do. I was in a, the building supply place and bumped into somebody who I hadn't seen in probably 10 years, who asked me how I was doing, whether or not I was busy, and if I wanted to work for them. So within you know a couple days of being uh, let go, I had another job, and so in those things, you begin to see the hand of God, not in the sense that even that I, I obviously was concerned and was asking him about finding a job, but I was thinking more in terms of having to go out and look for one. But he just supplied one. Uh, Also, though, too, in in negative things, uh, I think one of the most painful experiences I've ever had as a believer was where we were part of a group that planted a church, and uh, along with another couple um, whom we had befriended and we had gone through church planting, apprenticeship, we went out and planted this church with them. And um, within a year, a little less than a year, things really went sideways as one individual just uh, maneuvered and, and, you know, made a grab for uh, being in a position of authority. Um, and that involved a, a personal attack on myself. So that was very uh, a painful period of time, um, very uh, a time when, when Jeannie and I, uh, turned to jesus and we discovered that uh, sometimes some of his teaching isn't just a, a, a beautiful metaphor uh, and that became clear to us with um, his teaching on being anxious and being worrisome uh, of, that we should look at the birds and look at the the grasses and flowers of the field so for every night uh, every night for um, oh, several months we after dinner we would go out for a walk and we would talk with one another and then we would Pray and and then we'd come home and we had um, just a physical sense of Jesus' presence with us, of, of comforting us, of bringing peace uh, to us. Uh, and through all of that, it uh, really made clear to us that we needed to keep in fellowship with other believers, uh, that we had always drawn comfort and encouragement from their expressions of faith and how Jesus supplied for them and we hope and I hope that I can do the same too is that uh, uh, talking about how God has supplied and talking about what he has done for me personally will encourage others and so that's what we uh, and that's what I hope I can do in the future uh, because I never really know what's coming Uh, I just hope that I can learn from the past and face it in the manner that I should
1: There are a lot of great stories in the Bible. We've looked at some of them over the last number of weeks, but then there are those that stand out from among the rest. Today's story, the story of Elijah is one of those. Now, the story of Elijah for some of you may be a well-known one. If you took the time to read in preparation for today, you know his story, but I don't want to presume that all of you do, so let me just lay the groundwork of Elijah, learn some things about him as we get into chapter 18 of 1 Kings. First of all, who is Elijah? Well, number one, he is a man. He was a man, which I know seems quite obvious to you, but I bring that up because in the Bible, specifically in the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 5 seems to go out of its way to talk about the ordinariness of Elijah. Uh, It uses words and particular translations that talk about him being a natural man, being one like us. James chapter 5 specifically says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, James, what he is doing when he is referencing that is encouraging our prayer life, saying that Elijah was a man like us Who, although extraordinary things happened in his life, happened because he prayed to an extraordinary God. An ordinary man praying to an extraordinary God, and that should encourage us. So, that's the first thing just to note about him. A second thing to note about him is that he was a prophet during an absolutely tumultuous time in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms by this time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, ten tribes of the twelve making it up. The southern kingdom, obviously, with two other tribes making it up. But Elijah was in the northern kingdom at a time when it was led by an absolute nut job named King Ahab, married to a wife named Jezebel, who was a real piece of work, man. And we'll get to her, we'll get to him as we get into chapter 18. But just to give you a little breakdown on this time, if you double back to chapter 16 in 1 Kings, we read this in verse 30 and verse 31, "...and Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him." Nice, nice, nice background on this guy. Verse 31, and as if it it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the one before him who was also a terrible king, he took for his wife Jezebel. She was a Gentile and went and served Baal. We'll get to that really important part of the story and worshiped him. So that's the time that he was a prophet. It was during this particular era. But not only was he a prophet, Elijah was a man who represented all prophets. In the same way that Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets. This is shown most dramatically in that great scene of transfiguration of Jesus where we read this. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we get this. Moses and Elijah, they served as figureheads, representatives of the law and the prophets. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because we need to understand how the law and the prophets fit in with Jesus. What's the connection there? Well, the first thing that we need to note about Jesus' relationship with the law and the prophets is that he is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. We read this in Matthew 5.17, the words of Jesus recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he is the fulfillment of them. He is also the one, therefore, they pointed to. Jesus getting into the grill of the religious leadership. Excuse me, I'll get to that. This is on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, there we see again Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They pointed to Jesus. Jesus as he fulfilled them thereafter. This is why Jesus says, now getting to the religious leadership of the day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, eternal life is not found in the scriptures, the scriptures point to the one that eternal life is found in, Jesus. So we see this part of the relationship between the law and the prophets with Jesus, But more than that, as we whittle it down, the law back to Moses and whittle the prophets back to Elijah, we also understand that Jesus is the better Moses, ushering in a better exodus, leading to a better and more eternal promised land. In fact, if we go back to that Luke 9 text, the word departure there that you see in the very last part of the verse is in the Greek the word exodus. So Elijah and Moses show up on this Mount of Transfiguration to talk to Jesus about his exodus that he is about to usher in. Where? At the cross. New exodus. Better Moses. Eternal promised land. And as he relates to Elijah the prophet, Jesus is the one in which all prophecies find their yes in. What do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read this. For all the promises of God, meaning the prophetic utterances of God leading up to the time of Jesus and inclusion to that, all of the New Testament promises of God to us find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that we are to utter our amen to God for his glory. To put it another way, if Jesus didn't arrive, all the promises of God are null and void without him. We say amen, may it be God, so be it God, because of Jesus. They are all fulfilled. Find their fulfillment in Jesus. Let's get back to Elijah. Fourth thing that we need to note about Elijah before we get to chapter 18 is that he was a forerunner. What does that mean? Well, in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi leading up to that 400-year Intertestamental inter-testam- uh, period, this so called age of quietness where God was so called quiet. We read in Ma- uh, Malachi chapter 4 Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who was this Elijah to come? John the Baptist not a reincarnated Elijah but one whose ministry was like Elijah's one that came in the spirit and the manner of Elijah how do we know that because Jesus told us Jesus says this in Matthew 11 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John John is the last John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it he is Elijah that Malachi chapter 4 is to come that it spoke about he is the one The question is how was Elijah's ministry like John the Baptist and vice versa Well interestingly they both wore the same kind of clothing kind of stands out both were in a camel hair rough clothing You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 1 you can read about that in Matthew in Matthew chapter 3 They both faced hostile powers, specifically hostile women. Jezebel, we'll get get to her, and Herodias, we'll get to her as well. Both were bold, man. Very bold, very brash, very in your face. We'll see that when we get into chapter 18, but John the Baptist was like that. He called the religious leadership of the day a brood of vipers. You guys are snakes, man. Very bold, very brash, very in your face. Both called for repentance. Uh, John the Baptist certainly called for repentance. We're going to see the repentance acts and calls of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. And, and I love this, both anointed their successors in the Jordan. That's tasty. Hang in there. We'll end with it. It's so beautiful. We're going to weep, okay? That's what we're going to do all together, and we're going to get up and rise and dance in the aisles. It's going to be wonderful. Just remember that last point. So Elijah, a forerunner of John the Baptist. What else do we need to know? Two really quickly about Elijah. Like Enoch, this stands out. Elijah never experienced physical death. That's cool. That's cool. We read in 2 Kings chapter two, verse 11. It records there that he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind or in a whirlwind. stands out in the text. And then fa- uh, lastly, and finally, Elijah was a man of faith. Faith is very much connected to Elijah. That's why, going back to James chapter five. It refers to him. He is a man of faith, his faith coming out of a steadfast devotion, obedience and belief in God's Word, with a desire to see God's people, to live in wholehearted devotion to God. Now First Kings, chapter 17, records a num- a, just a number of just really sweet faith. Acts that get responded to in extraordinary ways by God. However, in spite of how great chapter 17 is, I want you to turn to chapter 18 instead. And here's the question that I'm going to attempt to answer coming out of chapter 18 and a bit of a flyover of chapter 19 as well. What does faithful devotion to God and his word look like when the kingdom of God butts up against the kingdoms of this world? For they do, don't they? Even though we live in a time in God's kingdom where we live in an eternal kingdom, an overarching kingdom, a kingdom without borders, we still, as followers of God, if you put yourself in that camp, on this side of heaven, live in a time where there is kingdom on kingdom conflict. So if that's the case, what should we expect? What might we be called to? What does faithful devotion look like? Well, I'll give you four points today coming out of chapter 18 and, like I said, a bit of a flyover of chapter 19. The first is this. Faithful devotion may call us to hiddenness. It may look hidden. Why do I say that? Let's read the first 15 verses of chapter 18. After many days, this is a day's reference to the drought that's going on. I'll explain that a little bit later. The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household, over Ahab's household. He had a position in the monarchy of Ahab. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and all of the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So you get a sense of the drought and how severe it is. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, speaking of Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned? that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. He's been looking for you everywhere. And when you would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation, nation that they had, not found you. In other words, just to explain that, Ahab is ticked. We're going to see why. At Elijah, he's been looking everywhere for you. And if the leader of that particular country said he's not here, they would make, he would make him take an oath just to validate that he isn't. He's t- just, in other words, he's been looking high and low for you. He wants to kill you. And now you say, verse 11, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hit a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Let's just stop there. Let me set this up. If you double back and look at the first verse of chapter 17, what we see there is that Elijah has prayed that there be no rain for three and a half years. And he has let Ahab know that he has done this. He's presented himself to Ahab. As you might expect, as I spoke about briefly, this led into a great famine, led to a great drought. And to it, ramp it up, like I said, he he's said he's done this. I'm the one who's prayed. Now the question is, why would you do that? Why would Elijah do something like that? Well, the easy and the right answer is that God told him to. But more to the answer is found when you marry the nation's idolatry, severe idolatry, and you marry it up, bring it up with the passion of Elijah, a passion of Elijah that wants to see God's people come back to worship the one and only true God. But added to this is an understanding that Baal, the one they turn to in their idolatry, is known for a lot of different things. Two of them specifically, one being the God of rain and also the God of fertility or production, harvest. He's also known as the God of fire. We'll get to that when we get a little bit down in chapter 18. But bring it all together. You have this nation turning from God, you have this severe drought that has realized absolute famine, no water. With a nation that worships a God of rain and a God of harvest. So when you have this famine, what do you have? No Baal. No Baal. Hard lesson, but a gracious one. With a God and by a God who desires to see his people come back to him. This is not a famine first and foremost to punish them, although there is severity in it. But it has at its end goal to see them return to him. And so this is what's taking place in chapter 17. As you'd guess, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel want, as I talked about, Elijah dead. But in spite of only living a few miles away from them and their constant pursuit of them, Elijah, by God's grace, has gone undetected. But as we arrive now to chapter 18, the time has come for Elijah to reveal himself as God calls him to do. And as we read in this happenstance meeting, and I would say it's God's providence, Obadiah, a prophet who lives with Ahab, serving with Ahab, comes upon Elijah where Elijah says, set up a meeting with me. I need to see him. To which Obadiah responds, not in your life. If I do that, Ahab will kill me. This guy's a prophet of God. Not gonna do it. For if I do it and I go to him, if you leave, like I said, he'll kill me. Now, on the one hand, we go, eh, I kinda get it. But on the other hand, comes across as kinda wussy. At least when you compare him to Elijah, you're not gonna take the chance. What are you so fearful of? I'm going to be here. Comes across as fearful. Comes across as wussy. But the thing that we need to note about Obadiah in chapter 18 is that he has not described anything like that. In verse 3, he's described as one who feared the Lord greatly. He had a holy reverence for the Lord, in other words, which led to him, led him to hide a hundred prophets in caves to save them from Jezebel's onslaught. Is Obadiah different than Elijah? Well, no doubt, but a devout and faithful man nonetheless. But because of his current place and position, his faithful devotion demanded hiddenness. A time may have come where that wasn't the case, but for now, when his kingdom the kingdom that he served under ultimately, the kingdom of God butted up against Ahab's kingdom, he evidenced his faith this way. What's the application to us? Well, what does a faithful devotion to God and his word look like here in Vancouver when compared to the faithful living in Iran, for example? What does a faithful devotion to God look like in a great and godly marriage when compared to being married to an antagonistic and unbelieving spouse? It is interesting to see what Peter says and instructs believing wives, two believing wives, when they are perhaps living with unbelieving husbands. Peter instructs this in 1 Peter 3: Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that. If any of them do not believe the words, so that's your context, that's where you're at right now, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. It's almost like Peter in 1 Peter 3 is saying, live more like Obadiah than Elijah in times like those that there may be times where our faithful devotion to God should be shown in our silence, perhaps. In our hiddenness, as it were. It is telling, isn't it, that at times the faithful obedience of Jesus was shown in pronouncements of woes against the religious establishment and then times where it was shown in silence before his shears. By the way, just thinking back to that 1 Peter 3 text, I think that 1 Peter 3 text crosses genders and can be applied to so many different situations. What's it like to live in faithful obedience while being the only Christian in your family? The only Christian at your job? I'd suggest to you, looking at Obadiah's life as we fall into chapter 18, is that there are times where our faithful devotion to God calls us to hiddenness. But then, point number two coming out of chapter 18, there are times where faithful devotion calls us to be boldly courageous and confrontational. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. We read there, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You ever been seen as a source of trouble? All coming out of your devotion to God, faithful devotion to God and his word. You ever ever been seen as that? Jesus speaks to this. Uh, Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, actually, we should expect it. He says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Persecuted and reviled for what? Righteousness. Right living. Living that God is pleased with. Reviled and persecuted for that. That's Elijah's situation. He was called a troublemaker by Ahab. And what is Elijah's response? Look at verses 18 and 19. It is great. He answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. Love that. I mean, Elijah, he's great. We love Elijah. Your fathers and your fathers, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 400 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. She had a big table, I guess. So what's going? what does he say to him? What does he say to Ahab? The trouble is you, not me, O king. And the ultimate source of trouble is your departure from the word, which has led to the nation's idolatry. And when that happens, what good is, what is good is called evil, and what is evil is called good. Such is the case today. What we see in verse 19 is Elijah requesting that Ahab gather 850 prophets for a showdown. This is a very different approach when compared to Obadiah's faithful devotion. Is it better? No, it's just different. Based on his circumstances and based on his call. Take a look at verses 20 and 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you be limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. I want you to see something. Put your eyes, please, down in verse 21 because it's so relevant today. Elijah points out there that people were going back and forth between Baal worship and following God. But why were they? Well, the honest answer is because they wanted to retain both options. That's why. It's pluralism 3,000 years before the word even shows up. And what does Elijah call it, however? He doesn't call it pluralism. Good to keep the options open. What does he call it? Limping. It's a word that has in it the idea of being crippled. Why are you choosing to live like this, limping or living a life of being crippled where you're keeping the options open, going back and forth between the worship of Baal and the worship of God? Just note what he's saying in this. Again, so relevant to us today. By saying this, Elijah is confronting the idea held then and held today in so many places. That a good way to live is to keep all options open when all it does is cripple you. What Elijah was saying is that there is no such thing as indifference or neutrality. When in actuality, evidence is that nothing but betrayal and idolatry had already taken place. As D.A. Carson puts it, what is taking place here is the de-godding of God. D.A. Carson, Carson uses an illustration of a marriage relationship to kind of illustrate what's going on here. She says, imagine you're married and your spouse comes home one day and says, you know, I'm beginning to have eyes for another. But not really sure. Kind of indifferent. Don't worry about it. Haven't made any decisions. You're still looking pretty good. But they're looking pretty good too. Living in a place of neutrality, living in a place of indifference, I would suggest if you were the one that received that news, you would feel betrayed already. It is interesting that in the Old Testament, the analogy used most often in connection with idolatry is the image of adultery. You've already been betrayed. This is shown in no better way or more dramatic way than in the book of Hosea. Adultery has taken, you're choosing to to live a life where you're limping from one place back to another place, but you've betrayed God already in that. How long are you going to live like that? It's no way to live. In fact, there's no such thing as attempting to live in a world where everything is supposed to coexist. It's an impossibility. In spite of us going, I'm just kind of neutral. As someone has said, a no decision—excuse me, no decision—is a no decision. We see see this modeled and evidenced here. I'm all for journey and questions and seeking and research, but a time will come where a decision is needed. Let's take a look at verses 22 all the way through 39. This big showdown takes place. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Remember, Baal is also known as the God of fire. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. If you use an NIV, it says they danced around the altar. That is an unfortunate translation. A word doesn't exist there. It's actually the exact same word that we came across in verse 21. They limped around the altar. It's as if their spiritual condition was getting fleshed out. They lived a life where they were crippled. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. This is fantastic. This is absolutely great. Saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, meaning he's just kind of thinking about deep thoughts. Or, this is better, he's relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom. Man, he's on the John, reading a good article. Leave him alone. Or he's on a journey. He's taking a trip. nowhere near. Keep on yelling. Or perhaps he's asleep. he must be awakened. Like this is awesome. Like I love this. Four and50 prophets, a bunch of people watching by himself, getting in their grill, mocking their God. Fantastic. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This was a very common practice, hoping in it to gain the pity of your gods they would respond to what you were doing to yourself physically. It's very interesting. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said, to all the people come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repa- repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Even though it was split, you see here Elijah had a great desire in bringing back the nation of Israel in wholeness under the name of God. And the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood and he said do it a second time. I double dog dare you. You just again love this cowboy. He is fantastic. They did it a second time. He said yeah go ahead do it a third time and they did it a third time. The water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. If you really want to sum up Elijah's life, it's verse 36. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering, and the woods, wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know what Elijah's name means? God is Yahweh. He fulfilled his namesake. E-L, El Shaddai, El Yon um, Yahweh, uh, J-A-H, Yahweh. God is God. The Lord is God. What do we see in this? Well, it's confrontational. We love it. It's mocking. Kind of dig that too, man. It's bold. It's in your face. Standing alone all by himself. But where does this boldness and courage come from? I think verse 36 answers for us. Verse 36 again says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. There is where it comes from. It comes from a a deep-seated humility towards God and his word. True for us as well. A bold and courageous faith comes from a humble disposition towards God and his word. Some of the most courageous people in the kingdom of God are those that are most humble and have that type of disposition before God and his word. Comes from that place. An absolute jealousy for the hallowedness of God. God. And a faithful obedience to what God instructs them to do. That's where the courage of Elijah comes from. And again, I know we love this, but it's important to know where it births from. But I get that we love it. Courage, boldness, cockiness, mockery between these two kingdoms. This is movie stuff. We like Elijah. But do you know where the greatest confrontation between two kingdoms took place? It took place on a cross 2,000 years ago. But in that particular conflict, the killers mocked. And the killers were bold. And the killers were cocky. And the one being killed, he cried out for their forgiveness. And in so doing, Jesus, the king of that kingdom, defeated the kingdom of Satan, sin, and death. Westside, may we always be careful in how we define true strength. So what does faithful devotion look like? Well, sometimes it's hidden, and sometimes it's boldly courageous. And sometimes, as we look at point three coming out of this chapter, faithful devotion ends with judgment and sometimes blessing, and many times it's both. Why do I say that? Well, take a look at verses 40 to 46. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black and the clouds, black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Remember my third point. Come out of these verses. Faithful devotion ends with judgment, and sometimes blessing, and many times both. The reason why I bring this up is because of what we see here, and I understand the natural reaction when we come to verses like verse 40 is to recoil. We don't like verse 40s, oftentimes leading us to say things like, "Well, that's just the God of the Old Testament, the one who went through anger management class before he got to the New Testament." right? We don't like the God of the Old Testament. We like Jesus. So we just say, that's the issue going on here. Bad Old Testament God. So much so that we even take the whole Old Testament out of our Bible sometimes. Just keeping Psalms and Proverbs because there's some good stuff in there, right? But we don't like the God of the Old Testament, even though oftentimes in the Old Testament, God is spoken of as long-suffering and patient and merciful and forbearing and is love overflowing. And the, and the New Testament records things like God having a winepress of wrath and fire coming down from heaven and consuming those who come against God as we read about in Revelation 20. And who can ignore the fact that no one talks more about hell than Jesus? So the whole Old Testament, New Testament thing doesn't quite hold water. And then on the flip side are those who come to the end of the story here in chapter 18 and they look at this blessing of God and they... See the rain that follows and the blessing on Ahab and so forth after the bad guys get it in verse 40. And they just go, it's just too clean, man. It's too Pollyanna, fairy tale like, too happily ever after. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with stories like Job, where at the end of the story, Job coming out of his faithfulness is rewarded twofold and his friends get it? They're punished. What do we do with stories like that? How do we reason with stories like this, verses and texts like this? What's it calling us to? Well, I think it's calling us to remember. To remember the bigger story that all stories, including this one, fall under God's story. The story that has front and center the commitment to the hallowedness of his name. The story that declares that in the end, God wins. God vindicates, God rewards, that God is indebted to no one, that there is no ambiguity with God. I think this story, like others, serves as a snapshot, a microcosm of a bigger story, of God's bigger story, that God does punish and that God does reward. And here's why I make this point, why it's so important to us, coming out of our faithful devotion to him our faithful devotion to God will reward or punish others as a result. How do you like that? Welcome here. But isn't that true? I mean, again, fast forward to the New Testament. What does my proclamation of the gospel do to people and yours as well? To some, my gospel proclamation will smell like life. And to others, you know what it will smell like? It smells like death. What does the kindness of the gospel do for some? Leads to repentance. What's it do to others? Hardens their hearts. We do need to get this. If we want to be faithfully devoted, To God like Elijah. Because too often we determine how our faithfulness is by the reaction of people. And if the reaction of people is bad, we question our proclamation. Faithful devotion to God can end with judgment and sometimes blessing. And many times both. Here's the last point that I want to highlight coming out of this text, and it really comes out of chapter 19, and that is faithful devotion to God calls us to persevere. I'm not going to take the time to read chapter 19, so let me wrap it up, sum it up this way. Jezebel hears about what Elijah did to her beloved prophets, and she's ticked. She's ticked, man. No one to eat with. She sends word to Elijah. You're a dead man. You're a dead man. And what does Elijah do? Big Mount Carmel time, man. Courage, right? In your face. Mockery. What does Elijah, this man of courage, do? He does what you think a man of courage would do. Runs for his life. That's chapter 19. He gets out of Dodge. He goes deep into the wilderness. Runs for his life. And I would suggest his running into the wilderness is to be taken both literally and figuratively. Because what Elijah does in chapter 19 is, I think, he goes into a big crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. This man of faith coming because he's ticked off at God. Elijah thinks he deserved better. Why was he angry? Because of that angry for the same reason we get angry at God. I took a stand for you and this is my reward. This is it? I should be living in bliss. I mean, look, I stood before 850 prophets of Baal. Led a revival. People turn back to you. It's retirement, man. This is what I get. I find myself laughing at chapter 19 and what Elijah does in it, but it's a nervous kind of laughter because chapter 19 is so much like me. It was certainly me a year ago at this time. Look at what I'm doing, and this is my reward. I stood on the front lines, I took care of business, and this is what I get, I deserve better. This resonating with any of you? Any of you angry with God because he isn't coming through for you like you think he should? You feeling entitled? Thinking that your past faithfulness has earned certain rights and rewards? Do you know why I have an easy time laying out questions like that? Because I get it, man. I get chapter 19. So what's the point of it? Well, first, it reminds us that our ideal, our paradise, our bliss won't be realized on this side of heaven. But second, as we begin to wrap this up, it reminds us of who Elijah was called to be. Who is Elijah called to be? If you remember our intro, he was called to be a forerunner. A forerunner of who? A forerunner of a guy named Elisha. Elijah? Elisha. Just think J comes before S. Elijah? Elisha. Who's Elisha? Oh, well, this is good. Remember at the beginning, it says we're going to cry and weep and dance. Elisha is a forerunner of Jesus. Let me prove it to you. Elijah was the one I referred to in my intro who accompanied Elijah to the Jordan and was commissioned there. Just hang right in your Bibles. Go to 2 Kings chapter 2, look at verses 7 to 9. Halfway through verse, oh, I love hearing the flipping of your Bibles. And if I could hear scrolling, I'd like to hear that too. It'd be great. They should come up with a scrolling app that just makes noises. It's like the Tesla when it revs up. Did you know that? It's all fake noise. Well, for those of you that have a Tesla, good for you. Look at verse 7. There's an illustration in there, by the way. Fake noise. Uh, Anyways, verse 7, chapter 2, 2 Kings. They were both standing by the Jordan, Elijah and Elisha. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And if you don't see the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan with the spirit coming down on Jesus from this, I don't know what will remind you of that event. This is a wonderful event. It's also interesting when you take a look at Elijah and Elisha, but specifically Elijah in chapter 19, and remember he's a forerunner of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist has a chapter 19 moment in his life too. A crisis of faith. A crisis of faith that takes place in prison. Remember John the Baptist's life, right? Forerunner, repent, brood of vipers, gets in the grill of Herod over his relationship and marriage. Herodias comes along. I want the guy done. Big dance, big party, gets sent to prison. And in prison has a crisis of faith. And he sends his disciples to Jesus with one question. Interesting question, by the way. Are you the one? Or should we... Expect another. Here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered the disciples of John, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preached to them. I've heard many preachers preach on this and go, "What Jesus is saying to the disciples of John is, "List out what I've done." I don't disagree with that, But here's the thing that stands out about that list. Those are exactly the things that Elisha did too. In chapter five of 2 Kings, he cleanses lepers. In chapter 6, he restores sight. In chapters 4, 8, and 13, he brings the dead back to life. And in chapters 1, 7, and 8, he brings good news to the poor and destitute. See, this is why I love this. What Jesus is saying to John the Baptist is that the better Elisha has come. And John, like Elijah, you were called to prepare the way. And the way and the truth and the life is here. West Side, we are not of this world. And we will butt up against other kingdoms here. And when we do, our faithful devotion to God and his word will call us to times of hiddenness and to times of bold confrontation. It will also lead to times of judgment and reward. And finally, it will call us to persevere where we need to be reminded that our paradise and our bliss won't be realized until we see the better Elisha, Jesus our King, face to face. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that you In our place, took the ultimate of battles, ultimate of confrontations on your back, in your hands, and in your feet. Pierced for us so that we would be ushered into a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that overarches all kingdoms. Where you, a good king reign? But on this side of seeing you face to face, we realize and recognize that we will have confrontations where our faithful devotion to you will be tested. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us for those times. Give us the wisdom to know how to respond. The courage to be bold when we are called to be bold. The wisdom perhaps of those times where maybe our silence is a greater testimony. Help us in that. Give us that wisdom, I pray. Help us to be Elijah when we need to be Elijah and Obadiah when we need to be a Obadiah by your grace and strength. For the sake of your kingdom and for the obedience to your word and ultimately seeing people return to you or come to you for the first time. I pray for that with all of my heart.
0: In Jesus' great name, amen.